Uh, welcome to another week in the week in government enforcement. As always, Jerome Thomas, joined by Tom Firestone. Um, let's just get right into it. Tom's going to talk about um, the latest in subpoenas being issued um, to uh, uh, several uh, uh, Trump uh, confidants, Trump staffers by the House Select Committee. And I'm going to talk about a real interesting case, uh, at least interesting to me. Um, it's a motion dismissed brought by um, the chief operating officer in a CFTC case where the CFTC brought the case against and it was ultimately settled against the, the, the entities, but it remains open against the individuals charging the, the, the entities and their founder and the founders of those entities with uh, operating an unregistered um, uh, crypto and uh, digital asset exchange platform, um, which the CFTC viewed should have been re registered um, and, and regulated by the CFTC. So I'll finish that. I'll take that sort of second, Tom. Why don't you hop right into the subpoena issue? Great. Thanks, Jerome. Um, as Jerome mentioned, at the end of last week, the House Select Committee that is investigating the January 6th um, incidents served subpoenas on four top Trump aides. Um, just by way of background, you may recall that the Democrats wanted to set up a 9-11 style commission to investigate January 6th. That met with opposition, and what we came out with was a House Select Committee um, set up by Speaker Pelosi, which is primarily Democrats and has two Republicans on it. The House Select Committee has been working for the last couple of months, and they sent document requests to several government agencies at the end of August, including DOJ, FBI, CIA, and the National Archives. The end of last week, though, they sent their first subpoenas, and they made clear through these subpoenas they're going right to the heart of Trump's inner circle and trying to get at what was in January 6th. The subpoenas were served on four of his top aides, Steve Bannon, who had already left the administration by the time of January 6th, Mark Meadows, his former chief of staff, Kash Patel, a former Pentagon official, and Dan Scavino, who was uh, Trump's social media advisor. And again, the letters, the way the subpoenas are drafted make clear what the committee is going at, and they are not messing around. They're going right to the heart of the issue. They're going to Trump's role in provoking the January 6th attack on the Capitol and the role of the administration in trying to undermine the certification of the election. For example, the subpoena to uh, Mark Meadows states that we have reason to believe you, quote, directly communicated with the highest official at the Department of Justice requesting investigations into election fraud matters in several states, and that you made contact with several state officials to encourage investigation of allegations of election fraud. The Scavino letter says, it appears that you were either with or in the vicinity of former President Trump on January 6th and are a witness to his activities that day, and you were with him on January 5th when he and others were considering how to convince members of Congress not to certify the election for Joe Biden. The subpoenas call for these four to produce documents in the first week of October and to come before the committee and testify during the second week of October. Now, again, as I say, these are the first subpoenas they've served. They follow on a whole host of document requests sent to government agencies, as well as various social media companies at the end of August. Now, Trump and his spokespeople responded in a very predictable manner as soon as the subpoenas were issued. One of his spokesmen, Taylor Budowich, issued a statement which says, quote, the highly partisan communist style select committee, what communism has to do with this, I don't know, but that's how they characterize it. The communist style select committee 
has put forth an outrageously broad records request that lacks both legal precedent and legislative merit. Executive privilege will be defended, not just on behalf of President Trump and his administration, but also on behalf of the office of the President of the United States and the future of our nation. So we know where they're going. They're gonna to try to defeat these subpoenas and document requests on executive privilege grounds. The four who were subpoenaed will undoubtedly make similar arguments. Um, that's going to be difficult though. Most difficult for Mr. Bannon, given that he wasn't in the administration at that point. So it's not clear how he's going to claim executive privilege. The others may try to make some argument about executive privilege, but what's important to remember here is that executive privilege belongs to the sitting president not the former president. So Trump cannot really claim executive privilege over this. It will be up to President Biden to determine what is disclosed or not disclosed uh, to the extent to which there are objections on the grounds of executive privilege. Now, the Biden administration has already signaled where it's going with this, which is in favor of disclosure, but it's not 100% clear what they're going to do. The uh, White House spokesperson Jen Psaki said after the subpoenas were issued and she was asked, are you going to oppose on privilege grounds? She said, quote, we take this matter incredibly seriously. <laughs> Good to know they should. Um, she went on to say the president has already concluded that it would not be appropriate to assert executive privilege. And so we will respond promptly to these questions as they arise and certainly as they come up from Congress. But it's not, that sounds pretty, you know, categorical, but it's not clear exactly what that means. Does that mean they're not going to make any privilege assertion over any of the documents that have been requested? Or are they leaving legal room and just saying that we're not going to make a blanket assertion of executive privilege here? You might think that, you know, President Biden, I mean, given, you know, the, <laughs> the investigation is into the Trump administration's attempts to prevent President Biden from becoming president, they might not be sympathetic to any claims of executive privilege raised by, um, raised by former President Trump. But it's important to remember here that there's a history here. And in previous situations, we have seen presidents of opposing parties asserting privilege with respect to documents sought regarding their immediate predecessors despite the political antipathy that might have existed before them. For example, in 1953, the House Un-American Affairs Committee subpoenaed President Truman, former, then former President Truman, about a loyalty program, an anti-communist loyalty program that he had. He objected on the grounds of really separation of powers and sort of implied privilege, and the Eisenhower administration basically backed him. Um, when uh, George W. Bush was president, one of his first executive orders was a directive to the Department of Justice not to produce records to Congress that related to an investigation of Clinton campaign finance issues. Again, because of the institution of the presidency and not wanting to set a precedent about subpoenas that could come back to bite them after they leave office. So there's some question here as to whether how Biden is going to approach this. And I should also point out that with regard to the documents that have been requested from the National Archives, we actually have a law in place that regulates the procedure for the production of these documents. It's called the Presidential Records Act. It was passed in 1973 after Watergate when there was 
that um, President Nixon might destroy some evidence. So it basically requires document preservation on the part of the president. It requires delivery of documents to the National Archives. And then when the archives are subpoenaed, they have to give the former president an opportunity to weigh in and assert claims of privilege. Now that can be overridden by the sitting, sitting president, but there is a statutorily mandated role for a former president to assert um, privilege over his or her documents. Um, I suspect what will happen is that Biden will decide that almost all of these documents are producible. He may hold back some of them. And then the Trump um, people will try to litigate that. Um, I don't think they will be successful. We have a little bit of precedent on this. There is a 1991 Supreme Court case called Armstrong v. Bush, in which a journalist tried to challenge President Bush's management of, um, of presidential documents. And the Supreme Court basically held that there's no judicial review of how a president preserves documents and complies with the presidential, uh, records, um, presidential records Act. The court said permitting judicial review of the president's compliance with the PRA would upset the intricate statutory scheme Congress carefully drafted to keep in equipoise important competing and political and constitutional concerns. So I think that it will come out that uh, the Biden administration has signaled they will disclose these documents. That will be challenged by the recipients of these um, subpoenas. They may also try to claim the Fifth Amendment and try to force the uh, investigating committee to immunize them, as happened in the Iran-Contra hearings. Um, we'll have to see whether or not they're willing to go that far. Um, but I think that overall, the strategy will be to try to fight these subpoenas, fight these document production requests um, in the hopes that the Republicans will gain the uh, gain control of the um, of the House back in the midterm elections. And then maybe the, wrong, the issue will presumably go away at that point. So that's where we stand. We'll have to see how this develops. We're going to see more legal wrangling between um, former President Trump and his inner circle and congressional investigators, and they have indicated they are going to, if we look at where the Justice Department is on January 6th, they've done a phenomenal job bringing charges against those who were in the building. We haven't seen very much about those who might have organized it. It looks like the Congressional Investigating Committee is going to step into the void and try to go after um, the, those in the Trump administration who may have uh, had a role in planning this. Um, we'll have to see how successful that is. They obviously don't have the same powers the Justice Department has. So this is one, another one to continue to watch as things progress. With that, back to you, Jerome. Well, Tom, there's always a first on this week in government enforcement every week. This week, the first is the use of the term equipoise, which I actually had to Google and look up. I love the word. I'm going I'm to use it now. I'm going to drive all my friends and family nuts using equipoise in everyday conversation. Um, thank you. Glad to have been of use. <laughs> Tom, thank you very much. So uh, uh, last week, Benjamin Dello, the chief operating officer of uh, five companies um, that were generally alleged uh, to, to be operating under the name of the BitMEX cryptocurrency derivatives trading platform, um, filed a motion to dismiss charges um, filed against uh, himself, um, uh, as well as you know, originally the you know the Bitmex entities and other individuals for operating um, the platform, which was a cryptocurrency um, trading platform, without uh, 
without registering appropriately with the CFTC as a futures commission merchant, um, all the while uh, directing and conducting significant aspects of uh, BitMEX's business from the U.S. and unlawfully accepting orders and funds from U.S. customers to trade cryptocurrencies, including derivatives on Bitcoin, Ether, and Litecoin, without obviously registering as a CFTC, uh, as a CFTC FCM. Um, here's the rub. Um, yeah, the, the, the CFTC, as well as the SEC, are bringing registration cases against uh, uh, cryptocurrency and digital asset exchanges and platforms all the time. This is nothing new. Um, and they're bringing charges against the proprietors and the founders of these organizations. The, the reason we're talking about this case here today is that, um, is that uh, uh, Dilo, uh, who's the chief operating, operating officer, is a UK citizen who resides in Hong Kong, not an American resident, not an American citizen. He allegedly built and oversaw the BitMEX trading engine um, which according to the CFTC's complaint matches customer orders with one another. Um, and uh, at the heart of the CFTC's complaint is this concept of control person, um, um, which under both the commodities laws and the parallel provision on the federal securities laws um, provide for liability of people who control a primary violator of the federal securities laws. Here, um, liability arises under 7 U.S.C. Uh, 13C uh, B, uh, as alleged by the CFTC, which imposes, quote, derivative liability on controlling persons that did not act in good faith with respect to violations and knowingly induce, directly or indirectly, the act or acts constituting violation. Look, as I mentioned, control person liability is a commonly employed theory by both the SEC and the CFTC. I remember drafting up complaints and, and, and briefing control personal liability all the time when I was on the SEC as well as on the outside. Um, that's not the issue here. Uh, that's, as, that's as old as the Hills, control personal liability. Um, the issue is that when a defendant sought to be held liable under control person liability is not a US citizen or resident, what level of minimum contacts with the US are necessary in order for that non-US citizen or resident to be sued by the CFTC in federal, federal court under a theory of control person liability. Essentially, it's personal jurisdiction running headlong into control person liability, which is why I found, found this so fascinating. So um, the motion to dismiss claims that um, you know, the CFTC's complaint uh, states affirmatively that Dillo was responsible for developing and overseeing BitMEX's trading engine, um, uh, which uh, the CFTC, according to the motion to dismiss, knew was located outside of the U.S. Um, the motion to dismiss says he's not alleged to have been responsible for marketing or business development anywhere in the world, much less in the United States. Um, uh, the motion to dismiss further states that, look, the complaint broadens that, uh, that Dillo and his co-founders controlled the operations of the BitMEX common enterprise, including the various entities that comprise uh, BitMEX. Um, and it said that these co-founders signed documents on behalf of the BitMEX entities, controlled the bank and trading accounts for the BitMEX corporate entities, and had the authority to hire and fire employees, and that Dilo and his co-founders controlled deposits to and withdrawals from the BitMEX platform, and that key financial and trading decisions require founder approval, uh, including approval of Dilo. So the, what the CFTC is saying is, look, 
this is this is an organization that is for all intents and purposes closely held and is run by the founders and as a result you Dilo are intimately involved in and you control this entity the bitmex entities and as a result you are responsible or liable for the violations of the entity that was alleged to have under, to have committed the underlying violations of the commodities laws the bitmex entities um, what the motion to dismiss says though however is that look the complaint isn't make, doesn't make any allegations that DLO had any control or, or responsibility over the issues of regulatory compliance. Um, instead, he, uh, uh, you know, at most, the complaint says that DLO and his other co-founders um, were responsible for uh, making decisions about whether or not to pursue regulatory approval and whether or not to implement KYC or AML policies and procedures under US law, but not actually involved in the underlying uh, responsibility day-to-day -day for compliance with, with any laws, let alone with, with US laws. Um, the, uh, the complaint also says that, look, um, uh, DLO, you say that DLO was involved in BitMEX's availment of the US markets. Well, that's not true. Um, and interestingly, the motion to dismiss says, when discussing the alleged solicitation of US customers, when you look at the complaint, the CFTC's complaint mentions them once. And that, actually that's a single allegation relating to a communication with a, propriety, uh, a proprietary trading firm in Chicago uh, before the CFTC issued its public announcement in September, 2015, that took the position that cryptocurrencies were commodities for purposes of the CEA. Uh, the motion to dismiss points that there beyond that, there is no spe specific allegation that Mr. Dilo at all was responsible for and involved in directing the purposeful availment by bit, the BitMEX entities of uh, the US markets. Um, he says, because the motion to dismiss uh, uh, argues that uh, he said that because he's a foreign defendant who doesn't have any informed contacts that give rise to the underlying claim, the Second Circuit requires the allegations that the defendant expressly aimed his conduct at the forum. And he said his, his alleged development and oversight of the trading engine is not conduct aimed at US persons. And there wasn't any allegation that at all tied DLO to any US activities that established personal jurisdiction. Um, he also says that, look, he I didn't have any responsibility for supervising any employees in the United States, nor did I oversee or supervise any of BitMEX's functions that operated in the US. Um, uh, and uh, what he did is he said, look, there, there are a couple of cases on point here. Um, one case is DAS versus Rio Tinto PLC, and the other case is Inray Brascom, both securities litigation cases. Um, specifically in the DAS case, he said, DAS, the corporate defendant, Rio Tinto PLC, which was headquartered in the UK and listed on the New York Stock Exchange, was accused of paying bribes, um, was accused of, of paying bribes, pardon me, I lost, paying bribes to Guinean government officials to secure mining rights. Following the disclosure of the alleged bribes, the plaintiff brought securities fraud and control person claims under, the secure, uh, under sections 10B and 20A of the Securities Exchange Act against several former officers, including a non-CEO executive, um, who led the group paying the bribes. The 
court found the allegations about the non-CEO executive role in the mining, his position on the executive committee, and his involvement in drafting the company's ethics code of conduct were merely conclusory statements applicable to all individual defendants as a result of their position in the company. Um, and they went on to say, critically absent from the complaint in DAS, according to the motion dismissed, were any allegations about the executive's role in the conduct underlying the Section 10B claim, namely the preparation and dissemination of the allegedly false SEC statements. They said, as a result, the court dismissed the claims for lack of personal jurisdiction. You can see where they're going here, Tom, right? What they're saying is, look, fair, fair point. Um, so we basically created the trading engine um, that was used to match orders and basically run the business. But that's not enough. Um, you know, the, the fact that I am a founder of the company, I'm a one-third owner of the company, and that I'm involved in a number of significant managerial decisions. If you're trying to establish minimum contacts for purposes of, of really constitutional due process, um, you need to show more than I was an officer of the company. You, you actually have to show me purposely availing myself in some way or shape of the US markets. And the CFTC's complaint has not done that. Um, it's interesting, um, Tom, that uh, if, if, you read, if you read the motion to dismiss, it seems as if the, the CFTC's allegations sort of evolved over time. And, and there was, um, they, they, they sharpened their pencils, if you will, um, on allegations involving control person liability. But what, what, what doesn't seem to be present, at least according to the motion to dismiss, is any specific hook, if you will, clearly uh, matching Mr. Delo, the former chief op or the chief operating officer, to conduct in, uh, in the United States. And, and it's interesting because control person liability, it's usually a fairly straightforward analysis, which is, do you have the power and the authority to control the decisions of of the entity that violated the commodities laws or the securities laws. And if you did, um, did you somehow have a, do you somehow have a good faith defense? Is, is there some reason to believe that you weren't aware of what was going on at the corporate entity, right? That's a, that's a defense, an affirmative defense. Um, we, we don't really seem to be even talking about is control person liability appropriate here. This is more of a, a constitutional due process minimum contacts case and less so one about, uh, about whether control person liability is the appropriate theory or not. But to me, it's fascinating because um, sitting in the shoes uh, of, of a former government lawyer, you know, a, a civil regulatory agency enforcement lawyer, I can clearly see why the CFTC brought charges against the three executives and the founders under control person liability, because that's one of the main um, uh, arrows in the quiver of a CFTC or SEC enforcement lawyer when they're bringing a case against founders and, and a company for violations of these laws. Um, so so that, that doesn't surprise me. What, what I think is gonna be really interesting here is how a fairly straightforward concept in financial regulation law, control person, matches up with these notions of minimum contacts under uh, 
uh, under the constitutional due process requirements. And so, again, there's still briefing to be done here, and we'll follow up ultimately when there's a, uh, a response brief and when there's a decision on the case. But again, it's just so for folks out there, right, we deal with companies and their officers all the time that get caught up in these types of investigations. Um, and it's a helpful reminder in this case that, you know, there, there's, you know there, there, there's oftentimes a number of permutations that, you know, maybe the CFTC isn't fully thinking about or maybe are taking aggressive uh, positions or stances with respect to holding foreign officers and directors responsible for conduct that needs to be somehow placed in the U.S., so again, a helpful reminder, um, we're a long way from there being a resolution of this issue in this case. But again, I thought it was interesting and one I'd want to talk about on, on the show. And sort of consistently just broader expansion of theories of jurisdiction, <clears throat> the way the US regulators assert jurisdiction globally, um, they've been expanding their definition and approach to that for years. And then of course, in the virtual world, it becomes more expanded because the meaning of what, you know, contacts with the United States today is not what it was 50 years ago, obviously. So this is all very important to watch. Yeah, you, you know, Tom, look, I'm obviously not going to comment on, on the case, but sort of just from a from a hypothetical standpoint, um, if what the if what the CFTC is essentially charging is that the BitMEX entities were doing an end around of the commodities laws and operating in the door and sort of a wink and a nod. Yeah, well, we're not going to let people from inside the U.S. with U.S. URL, address, or URL addresses link up to our platform. But if it happens and somehow they get a hold of a non-U.S. URL address and are able to, you know, Blog into our system. We're we're not going to turn those orders away. So um, you know, there, there's some there's some sounding of that in the motion to dismiss. Um, again, if you sort of look at that, you can see why the why the CFTC believes well, there's something here with respect to the the organization availing itself of the U.S. markets. But the problem is, I think, is that if this is someone who merely was responsible for designing and setting up the platform, but isn't kind of in a marketing or a business development. Um, again, the COO, not the CEO, right? Or not, or not the head of state. Is that person really availing themselves? Is that person really, maybe, maybe in the soup overall for the corporate conduct, but we're talking here about minimum contacts for purposes of U.S. due process considerations. So again, fascinating. And again, it points out the danger of you know, you know, there might be three defendants and two of them might have perhaps more more purposely availed themselves of U.S. jurisdiction than the third. So to cut, um, you know, to sort of you know, dye everyone with the same, you know, color, it, it's challenging in these cases because it's really going to come down to each particular defendant's um, conduct and their role and what they were responsible for and how they directed their conduct at the U.S. So fascinating stuff. Great stuff. All right. Um, well, next week we'll be back. Um, we're going to try to find a guest, I think, Tom, right? <laughs> There's no shortage of interesting guests. Um, no so shortage. Uh, all right. Tom, great stuff as always. Everyone, keep the comments, keep watching, keep coming. Uh, until next week, talk to you later, guys. Bye. Thanks.